You're listening to the most important podcast with Sunil Singhvi. I'm fascinated by people. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know what they care about. So I came up with this idea to create a podcast where we ask people what's the most important things in their world. So we go through a whole series of questions. What's your most important possession? What's your most important memory? What's your most important piece of advice you've ever received? And of course, what's your most important mistake you've ever made? So today's episode is one that I've been really excited about for a really long time. When I first thought about doing this series, I wanted to get this guest. And the guest today is Katie Kahn. Um, and part of the reason that I've always, always wanted to have her on the show is Katie Kahn uh, does stuff. Other people talk, she actually does it. So she was the head of digital for an absolutely massive film company. And she used to run campaigns that were unbelievable and that her peer group would look at and go, wow, that's amazing. And then one day she got up and said, um, yeah, but I want to be a novelist. So she did it. She put the work in and she wrote an incredible book called Hold Back the Stars, which is now available in 21 different languages. And people love it. They absolutely love it. And now that book is being made into a film by the producers who made Stranger Things and Arrival. She made that stuff happen. And at the same time, she thought, I need to understand film to be able to make this film. So she went and got a job in film production. So she does that as well as being a novelist. So when I say doing it, I mean actually doing it. So I'm so, so delighted to welcome to the podcast, Katie Kahn. So I mentioned already that I'm really excited, but we are here and Katie's on the show. Katie, you were... Uh, one of the first people to say yes. Oh, oh, that makes me really happy. So there's a couple of things in that. One, thank you. I massively appreciate you. But also, we kind of wouldn't be here without you, oh. in some sense, because you were one of the people that early on was kind and said, sure, I will do this. Because actually, as I was sending out requests, I was thinking, what if no one comes? <laughs> and you're like, well, at least we've got Katie. <laughs> well, I was. Oh. I was like, well, I'm like a Katie wedding guest. Yes, like a I'll do it. Perma, perma bridesmaid or something. Yeah. <laughs> I love and that. Like, even if we have one episode and it's just the Sunil and Katie show, <laughs> I would take that and I would be happy with it. Um, I'm going to ask you to do a quick plotted history mm. of yourself career-wise to tell us how we've got to uh, the Katie that sits on this show in 2020. Just a quick scan through your career. Okay, uh, so I graduated uh, with a degree in classical music, which it then turns out is uh, really, really hard to follow as a career. Uh, so from that, I took a leap into the music industry and started out sort of as a work experience and temp at Warner Music and Sony back when it was Sony BMG. Um, I worked in the A&R departments looking after cupboards full of tapes uh, back when like James Blunt was recording his album and things like that. And from there, I sort of worked my way towards marketing and social media as it was emerging. Uh, I was a PA at the BBC when social media really broke big and actually... I got disciplined for being on Facebook too much and told off by HR. And then I, when the TV channels that I was working on needed a social media strategy, they were like, well, she's always on Facebook. Let's get her to do it. And basically forged a career in digital marketing from that. Um, I ended up as head of digital at Paramount Pictures, the film studio, uh, for about four and a half years. Uh, and it's while I was there that I started secretly or not so secretly also writing a novel because I'd always written a blog and it was something that I wanted to do. I'm going to jump in here. Mm. So you say secretly, and I think that is, I mean, it's exactly the right word. Um, 
I met, first met you when you were working at, um, in marketing for film. Uh, and I hope this is, I hope you're okay with me saying this. Um, you were head and shoulders above your peers. And like, actually, it was my first time working with the industries and I'd got a new job and I went around to meet all the studios and uh, I went with a sales a sales guy and on the way into that god awful place like the <laughs> lot used to work on, which was horrible. It was like Middle of nowhere. Dubai and Chessex. It was all, uh, Chiswick, it was awful. Um, uh, I, I said, well, what's, what's Katie like? And he was like, well, here's the thing. She's smarter than us. And I was like, oh. Is that problematic? And he's like, yeah, because we can't sell her anything that's not going to work. <laughs> he said, the others, we can sell them things that aren't going to work, but she's going to know quite quickly. So there was always, from my understanding of you and the work that I saw, there was always this sort of holding you in sort of a high esteem amongst your peers. And then I saw the bookseller article mm. that says Katie Penn's huge deal for debut novel. So it was at least for me, completely secret. I had no clue. And then I saw that and I was like, how? Yeah. How it, do you do? It was an interesting one. A very hard job. A very hard job. And a very time-heavy, dependent job because you're dealing with the US. Yeah. So you're doing a full yeah, working day. exactly. Like answering emails until midnight, one o'clock, launching trailers in the middle of the night because of LA, the time difference with LA. So yeah, it was really full on. Um, it took me about two and a half years to write my first novel, which was Hold Back the Stars, my first novel to be published. Um, I had written a blog for years um, back when I was a PA at the BBC. I mean, I was a terrible PA. So I wrote a blog called awkwardsituationsforgirls.com and it was kind of about, you know, falling in love and falling downstairs and that kind of thing. And I think from that I'd found my voice. But then as I became more senior in, and, you know, suddenly was a head of department in a, in a film studio, I, I think I walked into a meeting with a digital company like Yahoo or something and somebody went oh I read your blog and that's when I thought I can't do this anymore so I decided to write a novel as something secret instead um but yeah it, it was hard going and it took me a long time like two and a half years is is a pretty long slog and I I, I kept it secret in uh that I didn't really no do you know I didn't really keep it secret because it's probably one of my answers for one of your forthcoming questions, but I also wanted to be accountable. So when I said I'm going to write a novel, I thought I have a habit in life of only doing something if I think I'm going to do it well and quitting anything where I'm not good at it. So like I don't do really do sport or exercise or anything because I'm really bad. You know, I was never picked for the netball team at school or anything like that. So when I started writing a novel, I was like, well, if I tell people, then I've I've got to do it. Like, I've got to finish it and actually try and do this. Um, but I think for for the film industry, which is very small and claustrophobic in a way, I think when my my book deal was announced in 2015, it, it, it confused a lot of people who thought that I was a digital marketer as, a, as solely. But in a way as well, you know, having a creative side project and a corporate career is the best mix because it's only of a benefit for your employer because suddenly, you know, you're talking about like storytelling skills and things like that, which feeds into everything that, that we do when we're getting the word out about, you know, whether that's films or music or entertainment or, or whatever it is, like storytelling is anything from a, you know, the way that you thread tweets to uh, the way that trailers are cut for movies. Yeah. And, and the whole about the stars holds a, uh, actually quite a special place for me. Um, in that I left the US in a hurry, like in an absolute hurry uh, for all bunch of uh, very boring reasons. But we departed Donald Trump's America before it became Donald Trump's America cool. and arrived back uh, in the UK. And I didn't have anywhere to live and I had a wife and two kids. So that was awkward. So I booked an Airbnb uh, and we lived in an Airbnb for 
35 days. And during that time, I read Hold Back the Stars. Oh, I didn't actually, I don't think I knew or had remembered that you'd read it. I'm really touched. Mate, it was on pre-order. I love Um, that. uh, It was absolutely, it was absolutely for me a little breath at a time when I couldn't find a breath. Like I was changing jobs, changing countries, trying to find schools and houses and all this. But just in that small window of opportunity, I got to read this book, which was, I mean, it's a sort of ridiculous phrase to talk about a novel set in space, but it was another world. Like yeah, I actually yeah. got to live something and see something and read something and didn't feel like I was drowning in how do I get children into schools and things like that. It was um, wonderful. So if you haven't read the book, uh, it's my one plug for it. You go and read Hold Back the Stars because it's wonderful. But we should get into the questions before yeah, I say do. any more nice things and please you can find it all unbearable. I want to start with what is your most important place? Now, in the show, I always caveat things by saying, uh, I'm asking you your most important things today, and I understand that things change. So this is a time capsule. This is at this moment in 2020, I'm asking you, uh, what's your most important place? Oh, hmm. I have... I think I'm quite a nostalgic person and so a lot of the places where that I spent a lot of time as a child um when I go back now it it quite often feels like coming home and so a really significant place for me is um Snowdonia in North Wales uh my grandparents are Welsh they live in the mountains there um sort of surrounded by closed slate mines but what I love about the landscape there is that you are absolutely in in the mountains you know you can see Snowdon and sort of all the mountain caps and peaks but you are also it, it's on the estuary so you can also see the beach and I think that's really unusual um, so when I was growing up we had a, a house uh, in a little seaside sort of tiny fishing village and you could run down the sand dunes and stand on the beach and look back at the mountains so for me it's kind of like coming home and a few years ago I hadn't been for a while um you know my grandparents weren't very well my grandfather passed I hadn't been for maybe 10 years and I went to festival number six which is held in Port Marion which is exactly you know that's a mile away from this village where I had a house growing up um, when I say it, I had a house that sounds really fancy like my parents had you know some tiny cottage that they rented out like uh, in a, a tiny North Wales village um but going back to Port Marion was it, absolutely incredible and driving through all these roads and villages where I'd been as a, as a child um, and I remember so uh, the Pet Shop Boys were headlining at festival number six the year that I was there and I was standing on the mountains which is where they put a lot of the tents oh my god it's absolutely freezing if you go take fleeces take layers because the camping is really cold in September uh, <laughs> but and what, what was really beautiful was that the Pet Shop Boys had invited a Welsh uh, male voice choir to join them for Go West so I was standing in the mountains for having this amazing amount of nostalgia for the place that I grew up and then go west with this Welsh voice choir that just echoed up the hill towards me and I kind of you know completely welled up uh, so that's really important to me and actually although my novel Hold Back the Stars is set in a sort of futuristic world it's set in a futuristic version of Europe um, funnily enough one of my characters is from Snowdonia and and like in the story it's it sort of becomes increasingly important that that's where she's from and that it, it was slightly different to the rest of Europe so I think sometimes it's quite nice when you write sci-fi but ground it in in the past in a way yeah and I think I think that's probably the art form right for all good sci-fi is to ground it in something like if it becomes too 
unimaginable. Yeah, I think you're right. So Margaret Atwood has very vocally said about The Handmaid's Tale that she didn't want to write anything that hadn't already happened in history. Um, And so that's really important to me. I mean, with my first novel, I just took it anywhere. So the novel is half set in space and half set in this futuristic version of Europe. Um, You know, the US has sort of been decimated in a sort of nuclear war by with the Middle East, um, which, wow, that's topical. Talk about that time capsule today. Blimey. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, so, you know, that was quite a fun world, uh, to create. And in that, I just sort of piled on anything that I could think of. But as I mature as a writer and storyteller more and more, I kind of heed Margaret Atwood's advice there, um, because the world is quite a crazy place. And I think that, you know, the best sci-fi says something about our world as it is at the moment. You know, you can find, and it's easier to deliver that, I think. You know, if you look at when 1984 was published or Animal Farm or anything like that, that kind of hiding that allegory in in a farmyard to talk about, you know, communism and socialism is is sort of more more important than ever because I think as well we're, we're becoming adverse to hearing... Uh, polar opposite opinions to us you know and I think you know we we can become very opinionated now and sort of shut down and unfollow people who have different views to us on social media so I think that fiction more and more provides that bridging gap of saying here's a different opinion and here's something that maybe you haven't considered but don't worry because it's set on Mars or whatever it is I think it becomes an easier delivery mechanism as well as a nice story yeah I'm not entirely sure whether it's easier I think it becomes a delivery mechanism. I still think it's very hard. Mm. It's very hard to do it well. <laughs> so I think let's not belittle the craft that you have in terms of making that actually possible. So um, you, you've touched a little bit about that sort of that, that moment in time with the Pet Shop Boys. Um, I'd love to ask you what your most important memory is. Hmm. I suppose a lot of splitting my childhood between, you know, that tiny fishing village and running around on the beach with with my dogs and, and stuff was important. But also, you know, I also grew up in North London. I'm a born and bred Londoner, which I'm starting to understand is becoming a bit rarer and rarer. And um, my mum was a sort of committee leader for a children's play project. And it was held in a local state school every summer. And we would go every day in the summer and it was just the most amazing place. You know, like they would be like, right, today, kids, you're doing woodwork or today we're all getting on a very old clapped out coach and going to South End on Sea or whatever it was or oh, the special treat. Everyone's going to play Quasar. But a lot of it was like, you know, here's a paper doily, make a Christmas tree fairy type things. But it was also just the most incredible experience because... Um, as a kid, you know, I'm white and middle class and grew up in Highgate. But it was this this great leveler because you had children from all different backgrounds, colours, ethnicities. There were the, you know, the, the really poor kids whose parents had to go to work all summer and couldn't afford it. It was like a pound a day or less for this amazing project. And, um, you know, we just got to do crafts all day. And I, I just think that that probably opened my mind a little bit more at a really young age. I'm talking, I was there from the age of seven till I was about 14. And by the time I, by the time I was 14, I was one of the older kids, you know, helping out with the younger kids. Um, but I just like to think that that showed me, uh, you know, it, it put the things that parents and adults kind of care about, like class and money and stuff aside. Mm. And we just had the most amazing summers, like at this play project in London. Yeah. Uh, I think your point about being a born and bred Londoner is really interesting because I think 
I think the microcosms of London are really interesting. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, especially with like the Brexit vote and, you know, so the referendum and the elections, because I grew up in the London borough of Camden, uh, which voted you know overwhelmingly to stay in Europe, I think 74% in, in my borough. But it's also a really interesting place because it's extremely affluent. You know, the houses cost two million pounds or whatever, but they sit side by side with council estates. And um, so it, in that way... I think a lot of people can be a little bit sniffy about areas of North London, like leafy North London or leafy Highgate. But it, it, it's so, like you're round in so close and you do you end up with millionaires next to council estates. And I just don't think that people can really appreciate that when they grow up outside of London or, you know, it's a side of London that you don't really see. Mm-hmm. And I think that especially in films and, you know, that kind of Richard Curtis, Notting Hill, um, like one colour chocolate box London is not really what you what, what it really is yeah I am um, I grew up in, in in Watford so just outside London um, and then lived in London for uh, 13 13 odd years um, and then when I moved back from America um, I agonized about going back to London like I really wanted to go back to London but then I had two kids and I was like oh maybe the suburbs would be better uh, and I live somewhere really nice and I really love it. And I think it's brilliant for a whole bunch of reasons. But I do always wonder like whether my kids would be more rounded if they grew up in London, whether they would see life in a different way and whether there's a job that I have to do constantly to make sure they're not as painfully privileged as the streets they live on. It's a really interesting one. I mean, I don't have children, but I have thought about it quite a lot. And I remember going to university. I went to university in Manchester. Um, I did a a degree in classical music, so at, at Manchester and then at the Royal College of Music sort of jointly. And I remember somebody saying to me really early on, they went, oh my God, you Londoners are so confident. Um, And it's like we just express our opinions and it's just, you know, and you've kind of grown up surrounded by museums and culture and things that you can absorb by osmosis, if that makes sense, you know, like going on school trips to the Natural History Museum or whatever it was, you know, that a lot of schools do. But I think when that's your daily routine, um, it it gives you a bit of an inflated sense of self-confidence and self-worth, dare I say it. Katie, I want to ask you uh, the next one, which is your most important possession. People have found this really hard. And every person I've spoken to has found it really difficult to think about it. But uh, again, it's this one moment in time. If I said to you, um, God forbid, the apartment, house, mansion, estate you live on uh, is on fire. What's the thing that you go and get? I live in a one bedroom flat, so... Uh, at least that means my possessions are close to hand <laughs> should I have to jump out over a burning building, God forbid. I think the really easy answer is, you know, probably my cat or something. So living creatures aside, I had to think a lot about this one. Um, and it, it's probably a, a plural. It's probably my bookshelves. Um, I feel like I keep a lot of the books that I read and love and then I keep the I buy and get sent free that's the one plus side of being an author uh, a lot of books that I want to read so I do feel at any one point that my bookshelves are quite a summary you know of my personality maybe and of my thoughts and beliefs you know they say you learn empathy by reading and sort of walking in a character's shoes so um my bookshelves are really important to me I did actually bring a book which is probably my most important possession. Oh. And it is 
the most crackly old um, copy. It's a book called Airs and Rebels, and it's letters sent between the two composers, Vaughan Williams and Gustav Holst. Uh, I stole this from my school library. Um, <laughs> I really did. Like, you can literally see there's a stamp in the inside from the school library. Oh, that's um, cheap. It's actually, it that. says withdrawn, actually, so maybe I'm okay. Um, but this is like a. You've written uh, withdrawn, aren't you? <laughs> no, I have not. Look at that. So that is an official library stamp, which I certainly did not buy on uh, eBay. Uh, this was published in 1959, so it's got that real crackly smell when you open it of you know the acids of the you can smell the chemicals of the book binding but I don't think that that's the reason why this is the um yeah go on have a look at that That I don't think that just the fact that it's a sort of lovely old dusty ripped up um book with a dust jacket on is the reason why it's so important to me I think this is a bit of a meta answer but I as a I was a classical musician I played the violin and then I've sort of morphed into being a writer as I got older and something that I always loved about this book was the idea that um, A, two composers, two peers, um, Vaughan Williams and Holst, found each other and that they were each other's support network and that they challenged each other and encouraged each other, um, you know, through letters sort of across their career. I thought that was a really beautiful thing and I, I always hope that I will find that person for me, the person who who supports and encourages but also challenges. I think that's really important. And I know you've got Candice Carty-Williams um, coming on the podcast and uh, I have been trying to have a coffee with her for the last year so get her to ring me back. Um, <laughs> I've got to get her to ring me back first. <laughs> we, um, we send each other messages about each other like, hey, I love your books. Um, but the other thing for me, I think that this what this book does as well is that kind of aspirational thing where you think wow like these two guys wrote music that people still want to listen to you know 100 years later or whatever it is you know Vaughan Williams is always top of the classical charts and classic FM that kind of thing but also that people care so much about the their creative output that they want to read the letters between them and I think that that has always sort of inspired me to want to do better and to push myself to be like well you know don't don't just write a novel that might be all right you know and then go and watch Netflix or have a nap or whatever you know so it's a way of when I'm at home in the evening and I really can't be bothered to do any more work of saying no you know what go and have a look at that scene again and see if you can make it better Um, because I just love the idea that those two men found they found their peers and and that long-term friendship but that people wanted to that loved their work so much that they wanted to read their correspondence. That's so interesting. I think, I wonder how common that is, whether there are a whole heap of great creatives that have had someone in their life you know, to push them. I think it is. So uh, C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and Tolkien, uh, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, they were in a writing group together in Oxford called mm. The Inklings, and they met every week in a pub. Uh, there was actually another writer there who who didn't reach their level of fame, who basically wrote the blueprint for both of their novels, like literally loads and loads and loads of the same tropes and kind of set the standard for it. But, you know, they had each other, and it was really interesting because... Because C.S. Lewis, uh, his fiction is uh, you know quite religious. With Aslan, the lion mm. is basically you know a, a metaphor for Jesus mm. um, being sacrificed and so on. And, and they kind of criticised each other's work, but also supported it and encouraged them to carry on and finish. Um, so yeah, I think that if you look back in 
across history that it is quite common for people to find their peers. But I also imagine that that must be easier when you have two people who kind of attain a similar level of success. And I, I think it might be slightly harder when one person becomes outrageously successful and maybe the other person doesn't. Yeah. Although I think if you hold their opinion in high esteem, the audience's reception of their work or the critical reception or the industry's reception is probably less important than your own perception. And with that in mind, one of the things that I'm fascinated about is uh, advice. Um, so Casey, for you, what's the most important piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, it's a really simple one. Finish the damn thing. <laughs> so... You know, I spent two and a half years trying to write a novel. And... Sorry, can we pause on that? Two yeah. and a half years, to me, mm. doesn't seem that long. You've said that with such almost disdain. Yeah. That to Ooh, me seems... it's not disdain, but yeah. Uh, that seems brilliant. Like, Yeah, may maybe, actually. I don't know, especially as it was a, a part-time hobby in a way. Months. That doesn't seem... Yeah, maybe. Maybe I'm being I think a, you're being hard. I think it's because I'm now embroiled in publishing where they want a book a year. You get deadlines where they're expecting a first draft within, you know, five or six months. So now now I'm yeah, now I'm in the sort of churn of the business. I can look back and say, Wow, I had two and a half years. What a luxury <laughs> which I you know, now I can see that and uh, judge myself that it took me so long. And on that, who said to you finish the damn thing? So I did a writing course in two thousand um, which was run by the publisher Faber and Faber. It's called Faber Academy. And I did the six-month novel writing course. And to do that, I had to submit a, a, a section of writing to get on the course. Um, it's quite competitive now. And I had sent in the first chapter of Hold Back the Stars. And it actually is the same as the published version of Hold Back the Stars. It opens with two people falling in space. And I was given a place on the course. And then when I met the tutor in the first or second week, he said, oh, you're the girl writing uh, the book about space, aren't you? And I said, oh, no, I'm not. No, it was far too hard. I've, I've given up. Like, I'm going to write. So I'm going to I think I said to him, I'm going to write an alien invasion comedy instead. And he just looked at me and his face was quite stricken. And he was like, no, like, you have to write it. He said, it doesn't matter if it's hard. Like, you have a really original idea. That's why we've given you this place on this course. You have to do it. And then he said, I'm going to make you, like, first on the list to, for everyone else to read your work. So get on and, like, do it. And, um, you know, the truth of Finish the Thing is that you learn so much more by finishing a novel draft or a song or, you know, whatever the piece of creativity is, then you will ever learn by stopping when you're 10% of the way in or halfway through or you've written 10,000 words. Because it's only really when you get to the end of a draft that you know what you've written. And it's, it's a bit like, you know, imagine if you knitted a sleeve of a jumper and gave up you'd never ever then have the the experience of making a jumper to then make a better one next time round so um it's very rare now that i a i like to interrogate you know my story ideas a lot before i start to make sure that I, they've got enough for me to get all the way to the end but b when i struggle like they say 30,000 words is about like the the kicker for a, for a novelist where you kind of run out of steam and you think oh god like I hate it what am I doing and um, I just always try and remind myself like no matter what just finish the thing because you're going to learn more from a failure than you ever would from stopping now. Amazing. Um, as a slight sort of tangent to that um, 
I want to ask you who your most important person is. Now, I've also given the caveat that this cannot be uh, a family member, and I would include your cat in that. Uh, <laughs> but he's <who's>, so cute. <laughs> very cute. And, and social media tells us that, that that cat is actually very cute. Um, who's the most important person for you? Oh, it's such a tricky one. I think, you know, my first instinct was to pick a sort of creator or creative or someone whose work I regularly return to. But actually, as I'm writing another sort of speculative novel at the moment um, and taking into consideration what Margaret Atwood said about using things that have happened previously in history to sort of inform, you know, futuristic fiction writing. Um, I've been doing quite a lot of research into the suffragettes and into sort of, you know, th some of the actions that they they took. And although, you know, it is controversial and they were labelled as terrorists and 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 things, I, I recently read um, Emmeline Pankhurst's speech that she delivered in 1913, which was called Freedom or Death. And it's so reasonable and she's so wise and so smart. And my God, those women could absolutely turn a phrase, you know, like courage calls to courage everywhere. It's just an amazing expression. But what she says in this freedom or death speech is she says that, you know, the, the idea of the suffragettes was to take it just to the point where peace and like equal rights and like the vote for women looked better than what their actions had done. Like it, like the giving women the vote was the equivalent of bringing about peace so they they took their actions far enough that that the men in government had no choice but to give it to them and i just thought that was so incredible and like looking at the suffragettes and reading more about them like my god they really knew about marketing like coming up with the the sashes of the three different colors you know that all stand for something um I think it was a male newspaper editor who coined the term suffragettes as an insult because it's really suffragist. Um, but giving it that sort of um, French ending suffragettes is it, like belittling. It's, you know, making feminine and small and insignificant. And the suffragettes leaned into it. They were like, great, if that's what they're going to call us, that's what we're going to call ourselves. Um, and so I've, I've had quite a great time. I'm not like not writing about the suffragettes, but I'm writing a book that sort of deals with a, another time and place looking at, you know, the evolution of women's rights. And it's been so, so interesting to me about how they led the, led the way. And then it is also interesting, you know, we just had a, an election in December and how many people on the day that we vote call out like the women are still, I think there was a stat going around that women, you know, age 18 to 25 are the least likely to go and vote. And how many people still use like suffragette imagery and said, you know, they died for our right to vote. So like you have to go today and it's the best democracy that we have. So for that, I would say Emmeline Pankhurst, but Wow, that sounds super highbrow. I, I, I was also going to say Steven Spielberg. So. Yeah, <laughs> just for balance. I mean, yeah, sure. I think I think both of them for very different reasons. I think the, I think you're right about the. I think people talk about the suffragettes and for a number of reasons, but I, I, I love the way you were talking about. Actually, they were incredible marketers. Yeah, they really were. They, they really nailed were. concept and delivery and tone and what they stood for and. Actually, I think a lot of modern political movements and uh, outside of the sort of major parties fall down on what the suffragettes nailed, which was this one message. Yeah, yeah. And it rings loud Votes and for clear. women. Like, it was so easy. But also that, that colour branding and stuff. I just think maybe um, I was thinking the other day about you know, like the the red cap, the Make, Make America Great Again cap, and it's it became such a 
a horrendous icon. And then in the women's marches that happened sort of, you know, all around the world, that that pink pussy hat with the two um, points like ears and you think that bright colored pink and actually like that all that is is building upon sort of the, the green white and purple of of the suffragettes like yeah they they really understood it and they also had a really complicated name you know like the women's society for blah blah blah, blah. and the minute that 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 male newspaper editor was suffragettes are like great that's what we are and they leapt on it mm. um that you know reactive marketing in the extreme i've got um i've got photos of my of my two girls uh in those pink hats on a march I in love that. Um, Edinburgh. And I, I took the photo at the time and thought to myself, I hope when I come to explain this to them, they think it's all daft and that all of the progress has been made. And like, I really have it in my head that there's almost like a timeline between that moment where I took that photo in 2016 to the point where they ask. And that point is coming actually really fast. Because it comes up on our TV in a sort of like photo yeah, display. Yeah, and yeah. at one point, one of them's going to ask, why does that hat have the ears? Mm. And I want to be able to say there's a tangible change. Yeah, wow. <sighs> I don't oh, know whether there I, is I so yet. hope so. <laughs> when I was at Paramount, we um, I was on the uh, leadership team for the Women's Network. And like we had to write a sort of you know, like mission statement for why the Women's Network even needed to exist, which was a big question that kept coming up, especially from men, where they'd be like, why do you need a Women's Network? And um, the the line that we came up with was about, you know, because we want gender parity in our lifetime, not our granddaughters. Mm. Fingers crossed. Um, I want to ask you about your most important decision, the decision you've made that uh, everything you can trace back to that. Oh, I... I think it's probably in 2015, so not that long ago, five years now. It still feels like yesterday, doesn't it, really? Um, strange that we're even in 2020 now. Um, I had written this novel and I was still working at Paramount um, and I was doing, you know, sort of 60-hour week, like answering emails all night. And when I got my book deal, I think I just knew in my gut that I I wasn't going to be able to do both or I wasn't going to be able to do both and do them both well that there had to be a sacrifice somewhere and I think I'd also um felt a little bit of a a lull in my love for the job my day job because I was marketing films and I think I knew as I was becoming more of a creator myself that I wanted to maybe move into where they were making films and moving towards film production. So I decided in 2015 to um, quit my job that I loved. Uh, and I took a job in film production for Warner Brothers instead um, because that was going to give me that kind of on again, off again, some busy days, some free days to write um novels and do both and so I I think having to resign from a job that you love I mean I cried when I had my notice in and um but I I had to do it for myself um and I had to do it like take the leap when you don't know if it's going to pay off is a really tricky one and I think that you know especially if you've had essentially a hobby that you think this could become my career but I didn't I didn't have the balls to just become a full-time novelist like and just say right this is what I'm going to do now I'm just going to be a writer I think I'm the kind of person who's always wanted to have that security of 
a salary and also a routine. Um, I'm absolutely terrible when I'm on my own. Uh, you know, I end up being in my pyjamas at one o'clock in the afternoon, just being like, what am I doing? I mean, I genuinely, the other day, just started watching, you know, the second series of like you or Netflix or something. And I was like, oh my God, it's two in the afternoon. I'm watching television in my pajamas. And I'm actually supposed to be writing a novel and working on films. Um, so um, it, it really suits me. I think I'm also one of those people where, you know, if you ask me to do one thing and I have the entire day to do it, I'm going to wait until the very end and it's going to be a rush and a stress. But if I'm busy, 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 then I'm actually really organized and I'll get it all done. Um, I kind of thrive on being busy. So having two jobs works for me, but I had to make that decision to say now that you know, the writing is becoming much more significant. I have this book deal. Um, I'm now going to be on a, like, sort of contract to deliver regularly. Um, how am I going to do it? And, it? and the answer was I had to leave a job that I loved. But luckily I found a job that I love arguably more. So <laughs> it did work out. That's, it's a wonderful answer. I'm, I'm slightly disappointed. In my head, I was desperately hoping you were going to say, I looked down the slate of movies that I was going to have to mark here, and there was one that killed me. There was one amongst <laughs> all those brilliant movies. There was one that I just thought, <laughs> Yeah, that's it. I was please like, God, hell no. no, I'm out of here. Just literally opened the window behind my desk, just jumped out. Like, yeah, I cannot work on another Vin Diesel movie or whatever it is. Oh, no. no the good la- ones are the good ones. <laughs> crazy. Uh, yeah, no, I'm totally teasing. Um, no, it, and it has been different. And uh, a big change in the job that I did was that I used to work on a big slate of movies and so you know you'd have like really different anything from Transformers to sort of you know Oscar nominated films um, and doing like big films and little films and now I just work in production from pre-production to post-production on on one movie for a couple of years like see see that thing the whole way through which is totally different but for me with the kind of I I love knowing how things work and how does that get made and okay but what does that person do and so this completely feeds that curiosity that I have um which is good and then maybe one day I'll write a novel that's set on a film set or something and make it like it's been researched the whole time (laughs) (laughs) so that is without a doubt uh an incredibly smart decision. You've made a great decision and it suits you and it suits your life because one of my follow-up questions was going to be, why didn't you just become a full-time novelist? Mm. But you've answered that wonderfully. Um, The follow-up question from this has to be for this podcast is, uh, your decision was great, but let's talk about the most important mistake you've ever made. Oh, I know. Okay, the biggest mistake I've ever made. Um, Probably the biggest mistake that I've made. Hmm was probably when I gave up being a musician. And the reason why I gave it up was wrong, but I can only see that now in my wise old age. Um, I I gave up because I wasn't going to be the best. And, you know, I had gone to music school. I went to the Royal Academy of Music on Saturdays from the age of 13 on a scholarship and I had a music scholarship at school and then I went to university and I did. I had a scholarship there and I was like, playing violin and the piano and the viola and like my whole life revolved around music and classical music and I just I think it was in my second year of university I just looked around and I looked at the industry and I thought I don't know where I'll where I fit and what I'm going to do and I don't know if I want to do this anymore if I'm not going to be in that like top five percent one percent whatever it is and um you know and the thing in classical music as well is that the people who end up in that other 95 percent there's not that many career paths for you. You know, you might end up 
being a teacher. And if you've got that driver, you want to share knowledge with kids and stuff, I can't imagine how rewarding that is. I think it must be amazing. But I didn't have that at the age of 20. So I gave up. And now when I look back, I mean, I kept playing the piano, but I genuinely haven't picked up the violin since I was 21. And that's something I'd done every day since I was seven. And um, I wish I kept going for pleasure. I wish that someone had said to me, you know what, it's okay to not be the best. It's okay to have something that you're not very good at. Um, I, I, I just think, like, as I get older now, I'm thinking of maybe, you know, finding a piano teacher again and doing it just, just for the love or joining an orchestra or a choir or something like that because... Um, you know, music and, and creativity and output, it's, it's such a joy. And like, it's the kind of thing that we need. And yet I rob myself of it. So mm. I think that's, that's the mistake where I said, oh, it looks like I'm not going to be the best. So I'm just going to quit. So if you take up the piano again now, if you, it'll take time to not be mm -hmm. rusty. Yeah. It'll take time. Would you worry that when you think about the next few years of your life, that there is a film, two films, three films in your future that you will be the sole creative on? Do you worry that you're going to write the theme tune, hum the theme tune? <laughs> oh, it's so funny you say that. So I think a, a big goal when I was uh, a musician at university, I did want to write film music. And unfortunately, I, I came up against... Uh, a tutor, a professor at university who said that my music was very derivative and he was like, oh, I can't see this going anywhere or whatever. And he shot me down at a very formative age. I was, you know, like 19. Uh, he was also quite an established professor and composer. Um, so it, it kind of killed it for me. And for, you know, throughout my 20s and stuff, I was always writing little pieces of like little theme tunes and always imagining it. And uh, as I'm working on a sort of adaptation of uh, one of my books at the moment, I, yeah, I, I have to remind myself and be like, you know what? There are music supervisors and composers who do this <laughs> much better than I ever could. But yeah, I, I think I'm maybe a tiny bit of a megalomaniac and you do kind of end up imagining that, oh, I could write the script and yeah, imagine that little theme tune that I've written there and oh yeah, I could play the piano on that and God knows what else. Soon I'll be like, yeah, I could probably direct it. I definitely couldn't act in it. I have no poker face, so that would just be horrendous. Well, that's good that that gets ruled out. <laughs> definitely ruled out. <laughs> I uh, played Eliza Doolittle when I was 13 years old, forgot all my lines, cried and ran off stage. So uh, acting's certainly not. That's it's, something I gave up immediately for being bad at. It's never stopped Tarantino. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Probably am. Katie, thank you so much. I've massively, massively enjoyed it. There's been some brilliant stuff from you. Um, we're now going to do the bit that I haven't told you about. <gasps> which is the quick fire round. Dun, dun, and I uh, think you are going to hate this. Oh, no. I think this is the sort of thing, oh, from no. knowing you through uh, through work and, and social more, um, I think this is going to drive you mad. But I'm going to ask you, quick fire, most important. Oh, Lord. Okay. So we're going to start with, Katie Khan, what's the most important film ever? Oh, my God. Uh, uh, oh, I'm panicking. I'm panicking. Uh, Goodfellas. Oh, okay. Ooh, most that? important song ever. Oh, my good Lord. Um... um Beatles because song yeah because really uh, yeah I mean I probably should have said let it be but I just panicked again um I went for the one that I kind of love the most uh most important musician uh, most important musician um oh oh uh uh let's go John Lennon for songwriting okay and the last one uh most important book oh uh oh uh the great gatsby 
which sounds very highbrow again, but actually I I have always struggled with reading the classics. I think it's because of a education system that makes us read Thomas Hardy when we're like 12 years old and, you know, puts a... I had to do Pride and Prejudice for GCSE for many, you know, years and years of going over classic books. But so I read The Great Gatsby in my 20s, like, oh, come on, then let's see what it's all about. And just absolutely lost myself in this world of like, you know, like deco 1920s New York. And there's this sort of ill-fated love story that couldn't be. And, you know, it's completely and it's completely trans- transportive. And the prose, I mean, that man can turn a phrase like no one else, my God. In fact, I have to be really careful and not read The Great Gatsby when I'm writing because it's too depressing because you go, wow, I'll just never, ever be able to achieve anything on that level. Yeah, I. so I'm not in your calibre. I'm not in your league in terms of someone that actually is ever going to get a novel out. But in my head, I have I have my plot all mapped out of the, of the novel I want to write. And I will take your advice, for God's sake, just go write it. But... Uh, Writing fits into two categories for me. I read stuff and I think, I should write that novel. Yeah. I should absolutely do it. Yeah. And then I read Cormac McCarthy and F. Scott Fitzgerald and think, back in your box, son. Yeah. <laughs> like, a, don't there's, be there's crazy. A, there's a real thin line, isn't there, between like aspiration and where you, you'll raise your game to try and you know be among what you love. Um, and then there's the ones where you just think, holy hell, I'm never going to reach that tier ever. Um, yeah, that's always a conundrum. And I think there's also a gap between your taste and your ability. And I feel like a creative career is basically trying to narrow that gap because you'll never be at the level of what you love when you first start. But if you keep going keep going keep going you can absolutely narrow that gap until you're you're up there but I think that takes a lifetime I think those are smart words to finish on that we should all spend a bit of time narrowing the gap between our taste and our ability thank you so much for your time today um make sure you uh let us know if you enjoyed the episode um you can subscribe uh in all the normal podcast places so you can find out who's on next week's episode uh but for now thank you very much Katie thank you